Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Uh, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the, the door were guarding the I'm sorry, and sentries before the door were guarding the, the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them for its own, of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent this angel, or sent his angel, and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people. I'm sorry, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea uh, and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king of Chamberlain, uh, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, uh, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of a man. I'm sorry, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing them with John, whose other name was Mark. Y'all can be seated. You guys join me in prayer. Father, as we gather this morning, Lord, we recognize 
Lord, that we come from many different places this morning, Lord, experiencing many different things this week, some expected, some unexpected. And Lord, if we're honest, we recognize that, Lord, there's much on our minds. And Father, we ask that as we open your word, Father, that you would be merciful to us and allow us to focus on your word. More than that, God, we ask that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts this morning. God, give me clarity and faithfulness and helpfulness. Uh, Lord, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you don't already, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. If you're uh, visiting with us, we've been marching through uh, the book of Acts, seeing how God is building his church, and we'll continue that journey this morning. In January 1943, a man named Roger Bushel led a major escaped attempt from a German prisoner of war camp. Roger's plan has been called the, the Great Escape. It was an intricate plan involving lots of men. His plan was to dig tunnels starting in the camp underground, going outside of the camp. His plan was to dig three, and whichever one uh, reached their destination first, that would be the tunnel that would lead him and a host of other prisoners of war free. And so they dug tunnels about 30 feet below the surface. They worked for close to five months. Again, this operation involved dozens of men. They needed air. They needed light. They needed a way to transport the the sand from the end they were digging back to the end. It was an intricate plan, and it almost worked. However, the night that they were ready, the tunnel was finished, and they went to escape. The Nazis realized their plan, and what was to be the great escape largely ended up as a failure. There were 76 men who crawled through this tunnel, and only three were able to avoid being recaptured. In our passage this morning, we have another great escape. It is an incredible display of the power of God as Peter, without any planning on his part, really without any effort on his part, finds himself freed from what was certainly a secure first century prison. God supernaturally and effortlessly freed Peter from prison. And just as there was a battle waging in 1943, there was a battle in the first century between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And so as we look at our passage this morning, it's my hope that you'll see at least these three things. The first is the kingdom of God is opposed by the proud. The second is the people of God respond in opposition with faith. Respond to opposition with faith. Thirdly, the kingdom of God is not threatened 
by opposition. If you're taking notes, that is my outline this morning. So first, the kingdom of God is, not, is opposed by the proud. In verse 1, Luke tells us that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Uh, Herod the king is also called Agrippa I. And he comes from the famous family of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the man in power when Jesus was born. If you remember the, the birth accounts of Jesus and Matthew When Herod finds out that there's been a Savior born in Bethlehem, he sends the wise men. That Herod is Herod the Great. And his grandson is Herod the King in Acts chapter 12, or Agrippa I. The first century Jewish historian Josephus notes that Agrippa, or Herod, sought to court favor with the Jews by trying to live like a Jew. We know from other sources that Agrippa I was a politically savvy man. His rise to political power was tumultuous, but he was savvy enough to ascend to power and reclaim much of the glory that Herod the Great, his grandfather, had. And we see the sinister nature of his attempt to court favor with the Jews in our passage this morning. Herod laid violent hands on the church. Herod killed James, the brother of John. Again, you'll remember James is one of the, quote, inner three of Jesus' disciples. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus brought up to the mountain... Peter, John, and James. There on that mountain, he was transfigured, and those three disciples saw Jesus' resplendent glory along with Moses and Elijah there with him. And so this is the James that Herod kills with the sword, and that detail is significant. The fact that he was killed with the sword likely indicates that Herod thought James and the rest of the apostles posed a threat to his power in Jerusalem. And so again, we see this is a power struggle between the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of God. And so after Herod kills James and realizes that that wins him more favor with the Jews, he then arrests Peter. Again, Luke tells us that this pleased the Jews. It didn't just please the Pharisees. It didn't just please the Sadducees. It wasn't just the religious leaders that it pleased, but it was the Jews generally. Again, we get more information about the martyrdom of James. It was swift and it was public. And so, emboldened by the applause of the Jews, Herod had another key apostle imprisoned. Luke tells us that Peter is arrested, and then he's handed over to four squads of soldiers 
to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter is arrested and then he's handed over to four squads of soldiers. There were four soldiers in a squad. So there are 16 soldiers that are escorting Peter. Again, no doubt with the intention after the Feast of Unleavened Bread to execute Peter in the same way that James was executed The kingdom of God is opposed by the proud. You see a similar kind of opposition in the book of Exodus. When God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh opposed God. Pharaoh opposed Moses. Pharaoh opposed the Israelites. Pharaoh was opposed to the kingdom of God because his heart was proud. He himself recognized that only he was a God as Pharaoh And again, Pharaoh, uh, after Moses and Aaron come to him, he responds, who is the Lord? But then he actually goes one step further. He says the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. So Pharaoh's instructing those who are watching over the Israelites. And he says, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Not only did Pharaoh refuse the request of God through Moses, but he actually made the Israelites' labor more severe. Why? Because the kingdom of God is opposed by the proud. And this opposition of the kingdom or to the kingdom is, is not just limited to Pharaoh or, or Herod, those rulers and, and authorities in power, but it's alive in every human heart. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is the heart of the battle. This is where the opposition to the kingdom of God starts. It starts in a proud human heart. The proud oppose the kingdom of God because they love the darkness. They don't want their sin exposed. The proud heart likes its sin. And it likes to pursue its own glory and does not like to give glory solely to God. And so we must ask ourselves this morning is... Is your heart proud? 
Is there a sin that resides in your heart that you're seeking to keep covered? Is there an area that you're actively trying to prevent the light of God and the gospel to shine on it? Even for those of us in the room who have been Christians for a number of years, the pride in our heart that once alienated us from God, that God has now given us a new heart, that battle with pride in our hearts still remains. And so we must be diligent in asking God to create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us, to participate with the spirit in putting to death the deeds of the flesh and learning to live in the light of the gospel. The kingdom of God has always been opposed by the proud. It's opposed because the kingdom of God declares that God alone is worthy of praise and He alone is sovereign and He alone commands authority over our life. And this demands humility and that humility is met, the demand for humility is met with opposition by the proud. However, the people of God respond to this opposition in faith. And that is our second point this morning. The people of God respond to opposition in faith. There are those who are opposed to the kingdom of God, but the people of the kingdom of God respond to that opposition in faith. You see two responses of faith from the people of God in Acts chapter 12. On the one hand, you see the response of the church, and on the other, you see the response of Peter. And both are responses of faith to opposition. First, the response of the church. Look at verse 5. It reads, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then look in verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So we see the church was gathered and they were praying. They gathered and they held a prayer meeting for Peter. These two simple acts are an expression of faith in a sovereign omniscient God. You see, gathering was dangerous. The church had just witnessed two of their pastors, two of the three key apostles, be imprisoned. One of them was publicly and brutally executed. The other was awaiting the very same fate. The message was clear. Not only are the Jews opposed to you, but Herod, the guy in charge, is opposed to you. Remember the night when Jesus was betrayed and arrested? What did his disciples do? Well, they scattered. They fled. They scattered for fear of being associated with Jesus and what that might cost them. 
They saw the writing on the wall that this man Jesus was to be considered a threat and anyone associated with him was to be considered a threat. And yet here in Acts 12, in the face of opposition, the church gathers and they pray. And Luke says that they are making earnest prayer to God. The word earnest is the same word used in Luke 22. Again, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and He's praying, Luke says, and being in agony, He, Jesus, prayed more earnestly and His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The church is gathered here for deep, persistent, intercessory prayer on behalf of Peter. This is not a casual meeting. They are pleading to God on behalf of Peter. And we don't know exactly what they were praying for, except that they were praying for Peter. They may have been praying that God would release Peter from prison. Or maybe they were just praying that God would sustain Peter and allow Peter to remain faithful while in prison. We don't know what they were praying for specifically, but we do know that they were praying earnestly for Peter. In the face of opposition, the church responded in faith by gathering and praying. Now, I'd like to suggest that their prayers were followed something close to the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches His disciples how to pray. We've seen prayer as a dominant theme in the book of Acts, and so I can't help but think the Lord's Prayer informed this earnest prayer that the church was making on behalf of Peter. So perhaps they were praying something like, Father in heaven... You control all things. You are the creator. You're the sustainer. In the terrible moments of our brother Peter being in prison, we pray that your name would be hallowed. God, would you use this, even this, for your glory? God, we have no idea how good could come from this. But Lord, we pray that you would use it for the glory of your name. Would you bring your kingdom here as it is in heaven? God, please let Herod relent from his violent opposition to your kingdom. Let Peter continue here on earth proclaiming your gospel. Nevertheless, Lord, not our will be done, but yours. Only we pray, keep us from evil. Keep Peter from evil. Keep him from forfeiting his faith in this hour of testing. We pray in Christ's name. Midlands family, I pray that we would respond like this to opposition. That when the going gets tough, and it will get tough, that we would continue to gather and pray. Peter also responded in faith to opposition. We've seen how the church responded, and now we'll see how Peter responded 
In verse 6, Luke writes, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Again, Peter sleeping. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying on that fateful night when he was betrayed and arrested, Jesus brought his disciples to the garden and said, stay awake and pray. And Jesus goes out a little bit further and then comes back. And what does he find the disciples doing? Sleeping. What does Jesus do? He rebukes them for their lack of faith, their lack of perseverance. In the garden, that was a time to to pray and stay awake. Here, however, Peter is sleeping. And I think it's actually an expression of his faith in God. I don't think it's a lack of faith here in Acts 12. I think it's an expression of his faith. Peter must have certainly known that his death was to be soon. Again, he was sent to prison with the company of 16 Roman soldiers. You do the math. The odds don't look good. And here he is in between two soldiers and he's bound in two chains. And yet he's sleeping. That's probably not what I would be doing in that situation. I would probably be trembling, not sleeping. And yet Peter sleeps with a confidence that his life is in the hands of God. Psalm 8.4 reads, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Peter's life is not in Herod's hands. It's in God's hands. And Peter knew that it was God alone who made him dwell in safety. And so he's sleeping. Now is a time for confidence in God's perfect plan. And so we see the angel of the Lord comes and wakes Peter up, tells him to get up and get dressed. We see Peter respond in faith. He obeys the angel. He goes out. Then when he gets out of the prison, Peter realizes that it was the Lord who had delivered him. And what does he do? He goes to Mary's house. And Rhoda, who is just overcome with joy that Peter has been released from prison, leaves Peter knocking at the door and runs and goes and tells everybody. And so they think she's crazy. They say it's his angel. They've been praying and yet they're still surprised. So Peter comes in finally and what does he do? He tells them that the Lord had delivered him. Peter gives glory to God and says, God has done this wonderful thing. Peter responds in faith to opposition. In 1924, there was a missionary named Rex Ray who was serving in China. Rex Ray and a crew embarked on a rescue mission after two missionaries had reportedly been killed. 
And so in order to go investigate and hopefully offer some relief, they needed to take a boat to reach where they had been reportedly killed. Along the way, however, that boat was intercepted by bandits. And when the bandits realized that Rex Ray and some of his crew were foreigners, there were Americans and some were Brits, they thought this is our chance to make a lot of money. And so they held them hostage in hopes to get ransom money from the American and British government. One night, as they were held captive, Rex Ray writes that he had an opportunity to flee. It's a perfect opportunity in the middle of the night to escape into the mountains where he most certainly would have gotten away. And Rex Ray writes that just as he was about to make his break, a voice seemed to speak clearly out of the darkness. It said, Not tonight. My grace is sufficient for you. And Rex Ray writes, So I turned over and slept. And the face of opposition, God's people, respond in faith. They respond in faith because the people of God know that the kingdom of God is not threatened by opposition. That's our third point. The kingdom of God is not threatened by opposition. The kingdom of God is not threatened by opposition because God rules all things according to His providence. God's providence is God working all things according to His will, which is infinitely wise and He is infinitely powerful. John Piper helpfully defines providence as purposeful sovereignty. God has a right to rule, that's his sovereignty, and he does so purposefully according to his will, that's providence. God exercising his rightful rule to reign and work all things according to his will. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What's the the goal of that? What's the goal of God working all things according to the counsel of his will? Well, it's, it's his glory. In verse 12 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God works all things according to His will. That is, to the praise of His glory. And therefore, the kingdom of God is not threatened by opposition. In Acts 12, you see two different instances of God's providence on full display. First, to His people, and second, to His enemies. God displays his providential care to his people as he supernaturally and effortlessly frees Peter. Again, we've already talked about how many people were guarding Peter. As Peter's chained to the wall in between the two guards, even if he wanted to escape, he would have had to go through three different doors. Two of them guarded by more guards, and one of them was a 
large iron gate. Again, Luke writes for us that as the church is praying earnestly for Peter, God sends the angel and frees him. I love that Luke tells us that the iron gate was just simply open. He doesn't even give the explanation. He said it was just open. A display, mighty display of God's providence, taking care of all the details. The next day, the guards, they're they're dumbfounded at what happened. And Herod is furious. The guards, they're dumbfounded. Herod's furious and Herod is left looking like an incompetent king for not being able to keep one man, a fisherman at that, locked up in prison. The applause that Herod had in the beginning of chapter 12 had suddenly turned to jeers. Herod looks insignificant while the king of kings is seen as gloriously supreme in this passage. God displays his providential care in hearing the prayers of his people and freeing Peter. A question naturally comes, well, well, what about James? Didn't the church pray for James? I think we would have every reason to believe the church would pray for James. If they would gather and pray for Peter, I believe that they would gather and pray for James as well. So why did God free Peter and not free James? And this is part of the mystery of God's providence. Yes, God is working all things according to His will. And His wisdom is infinite. We must realize that ours is finite. In moments such as these when when we don't understand God's providence or maybe you've received even a difficult providence, we must trust the promises of God when we don't understand the providence of God. Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God and uh, God works all things according, works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. James could not see all that God was doing. James dies in Acts chapter 12. He doesn't get to see Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 28, when Paul makes it to Rome. But just because James couldn't see all that God was doing doesn't mean that God was not working. In the wake of Peter's escape, Herod is reeling. He orders the guards to be killed, and Herod travels to Caesarea. At Caesarea, Luke tells us that Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And that those people pleaded for peace from Herod because they depended on him for food. And at this point, picking up in verse 21, the events recorded from verses 21 through 23 are also recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus. 
Luke tells us that on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. And Josephus describes what those royal robes were like. He says they were made wholly of silver. And so as Herod entered on that appointed day, entered probably a theater, when he entered early in the morning as the the rising sun was shining in, it hit these robes made out of silver and it reflected a light so bright and Josephus says the people there were couldn't even look at Herod because he was so bright. And so they cry out as Herod delivers his oration, the voice of a God, not a man. Luke tells us immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod because Herod did not give God glory. Again, uh, Josephus notes the same thing. Josephus says that immediately Herod had some sort of intense abdominal pain and had to embarrassingly leave the theater that he had just trumpeted in in his supposed glory. And Josephus records that he died five days later. Luke tells us that he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And the point is clear. Herod sought to claim glory for himself that was only due to God. And so God displayed the power of his justice and swiftly struck Herod. And James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the display of God's power. Some days later, the the bandits who were holding Rex Ray and others captive, they had managed to broker a deal with the Chinese government. They thought they were going to get a little piece of money after all. And just as it looked like the deal was going to be completed, something happened and the deal fell through. And so one of the men in Rex Ray's crew informed Rex Ray and the others that as he was overhearing the conversation amongst the bandits, that this was likely going to be their final hours. And so as tensions were escalating, Rex Ray again found himself in a prime position to run down the mountain. The only thing that stood between him and escape was the view of the bandits. And so Rex Ray prays. He says, Lord... Just send a cloud down over these bandits so they will never know which way I take. Could you guess what happens? Then came floating down beautiful white clouds that passed into the valley and buried the bandits out of my sight. Rex Ray was able to make his escape down from the mountain. And he was able to find himself on board another ship. So he's talking with those who are on the ship and he's explaining to them all that had happened because he's looking to get back away from the bandits. Rex Ray tells him that this is how Jesus Christ had delivered him. The men on the boat replied, Our gods can't do things like that. Only your God can. 
That's just the power of the providence of God. Working all things according to his will, for his glory, for the good of his people. And so we finish with verse 24 and 25. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. You see, the kingdom of God is not threatened by opposition. Luke tells us the word of God increased and multiplied. Despite Herod's best attempt to snuff out this church and a twist of events that only God could ordain, the church actually grows. James may not have known why he was to die and not Peter, but God had planned to build his church through the display of his glory in triumphing over Herod. Midlands, I pray that we would have the faith to respond in the face of opposition because God is powerful and he's working through his providence for your good and for his glory. So we'll, as we transition now to communion, we do this here at Midlands every week. Um, we do this every week so that every week we're reminded the ground of our hope, the assurance we have in this life is because of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so as we take communion, this is what we're doing. We are remembering the finished work of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion is what we call a family meal. It's a time for Christians to remember their Savior. And so as you take the bread and the juice, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And remember that one day he's promised to return and we'll be with him. And this remembering is not a purely passive exercise. It is intended to spur you and me on to greater works, greater faith. And so because communion is a family meal, if you're here this morning and you would not consider yourself a Christian, then I would ask that you remain seated. I invite you to use this time to reflect on, on your life. Maybe you've been trying to live in your own strength, thinking you can hide your sin from others. Friend, if that's you this morning, my hope for you is that you would not hide your sins. It's by God's grace that you would find yourself here. And my prayer is that one day you too would come and believe in the Lord Jesus and then come Receive communion.
If you want to know more about that, please feel free to find me after the service. I would love to talk with you about that. Uh, But I'm going to, to pray, and then after I'm done praying, again, if you're visiting, you can go through those back doors there, and you'll find the communion elements, and you can take them as you feel the Spirit lead you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the powerful display of your glory and your providence. Father, would you give us the faith we need to respond to whatever we face this week with confidence that you are working for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.